Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello everyone, uh, my name's Sean and I work in public programs here at ACME and I would like to welcome you uh, all to Studio One tonight for Replay, our series of events curated by ACME and Freeplay and presented in association with Film Victoria. Uh, now tonight's Replay is titled The Stuff of Nightmares uh, and we'll be uh, engaging in a session that we'll see uh, Stefan Schultz Christian McRae, Paul Verhoeven, and tonight's chair, Angela Dalianis, step into the dark, frightening world of, horror, of the horror genre and explore our fascination with the most spine-tingling of scary games. Uh, as I mentioned, chairing this evening's session of replay will be Angela Dalianis, uh, the associate, uh, associate professor in screen studies at Melbourne Uni. Uh, Angela specializes in Hollywood cinema, digital media, and the convergence of popular forms such as film, computer games, comic books, and theme park spaces. Uh, currently completing the book Spectopolis Theme Park Cultures, which looks at the historical and cultural influence of and on the theme park. Uh, her past publications include The Horror Sens Sensorium, uh, Media and the Senses, published earlier this year, as well as 2011 Science Fiction Experiences and Neo-Baroque Aesthetics and Contemporary Entertainment back in 2004. Uh, she's also the editor of the 2008 collection The Contemporary Comic Book Superhero and has published numerous essays in a range of international journals and anthologies. Uh, so without further ado, please join me in welcoming Angela, as well as tonight's panel, uh, Stefan, Christian and Paul. Thanks, everyone, and welcome, and thank you for coming along tonight. Uh, this is one, the last of the four present, um, presentations that have been part of the replay uh, program, which, as Sean mentioned, has been curated by um, ACME and Freeplay uh, in, in, in conjunction with support from Film Victoria. Uh, there have been a whole series. I don't know how many of you have actually been to any other sessions. Well, they've been... As I say, three other sessions uh, which have included a series of speakers from academics to creators to game developers, um, who I suppose are also game uh, uh, creators. Uh, they've included Free Play's Paul Callahan, academics included Josh Nelson, Dan Golding, and Helen Stuckey, who used to be here at ACME as well. Creators included David Sermon and Craig Dutebure, I hope I pronounced that correctly. And also various aficionados have included Ben McKenzie and Lena Van Deventer. Um, and they've focused on a whole range of themes um, from... And we've also had lots of musical guests who've, who've uh, DJed during um, various interludes. And we have... Um, sort of music component and sound component tonight as well. They've included Technodrome, Dot A and DJ Zeal. And the various sessions have covered things like anima uh, adaptations, virtual worlds, characterisation in video games. And tonight's topic is um, looking more specifically at, at games and genre, and in particular looking at the horror genre in games and looking at um, questions of fear and terror and how games invoke that and um, all of our speakers will be presenting on this. 
Um, before I introduce our speakers, I just it's pretty relaxed, so if you have any questions um, while people are talking, feel free to you know, raise your hand or jump in and ask what you want, because when the moment passes, it sort of passes, and then at the end, your sort of you know, discussion goes in all sorts of directions. So, yeah, feel comfortable um, sort of contributing what you want to contribute while we're no, going along. Yeah, it's, it's pretty sort of romantic where you're sitting. <laughs> okay, so let's get started. What I'll do is introduce each of the speakers um, sort of just by name initially, and then as each person starts, I'll talk a little bit more about what they work on and what their interests are. Okay, our speakers tonight include Stefan Schutzer, who's, who's sitting right in the middle there, Christian McRae, um, who's over here, and Paul Verhoeven, uh, on the far side over there. And we're actually beginning with Paul. So let me introduce you to Paul Verhoeven. Now, in addition to creating that series of wonderful science fiction films in the uh, 90s, I know you've heard that one many, many times, but I just couldn't resist it. Fine. Uh, Paul is actually the host of Nerdy by Nature on Triple J, as many of you would know, Triple J Breakfast, and is the game critic for thevine.com.au. He's hosted and co-wrote the gaming show Save Point on One, and recently he finished shooting Steampunks, which sounds really exciting. A narrative game um, show for kids, which begins on ABC3 in early 2013. He's co-hosted Planet Nerd on Channel 31. And he's a member of the sketch comedy group The Lords of Luxury. And he was asked, to, he says, to stop writing for Yen magazine after he compared Grover, as in Sesame Street's Grover, the monster at the end of this book, to Kafka. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> um, uh, first of all, I'd like to apologise if any of you watched Save Point. That show was a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> it was very bad. Very, very bad. Um, we we're talking tonight about... Um, I'm, I'm not going to hit any particularly interesting academic points. I'm just going to ruminate loosely, if that's cool. Um, but, I mean, I've always had problems with fear. Um, I had recurring nightmares as a teenager about the X-Files until I had a dream. And don't laugh. It, it's, no, it's, it had its moments. It's good. Um, until I had this dr amazing dream. Um, a, but me and Gillian Anderson were in this ski lift. Um, it doesn't get weird or sexual. We were just talking. And she said to me, you don't need to be scared. And I was like, thank you. I told Gillian Anderson that when I interviewed her. Um, it was just the two of us in a hotel room in Melbourne. And uh, it was going really well until then. <laughs> and then it got awkward. Um, but basically, uh, I, I kind of I, I decided from then on to address my fears head on. Um, and with games, it's doubly difficult to do that because you are the the I. You are the person in there, and you're responsible for looking at the bad guy at a particular point. You can't blame the cameraman. You can't blame the person who took you to the movie. Um, but I wanted to start with a video game which scared the crap out of me, but it was so articulate and artful that I didn't actually mind. Um, Alan Wake which is, if you haven't played it, it's fantastic. Um, and they recently-ish did a PC port, so you've got no excuse if you're not a console gamer. Um, but basically, it's like if they took Twin Peaks and forced it to make rough love with, like, Stephen King. Not <laughs> the author and the character, because it's about a writer who gets writer's block and his wife takes him to this um, little kind of pleasant burg and... One of the coolest things about the game and one of the awesome, most awesome inversions of the horror genre is that she's afraid of the dark and the enemy in the game is darkness itself. And the weapon you use is basically a flashlight. You do also use a gun, but the flashlight's <laughs> the, the primary weapon. Um, so basically, uh, I wanted to start with a clip from the game 
um, which, just to set it up a bit, they've kind of rocked up at the house on the island. Um, and, yeah. Oh, also, I didn't play this. So if the ambling camera work is anything to go by, it's not me. I had to rip it off YouTube, so I do apologise. Yeah, sure. um, Yeah. Can we roll that? That's got a total fear burner then. That was awesome. Um, one of the great things Alan Wake does, apart from scare the crap out of you, um, is it builds up about a third of the game in just pure ambience. So you effectively just spend the first third of the game as a tourist. You just rock up with your wife, you have a bit of a fight with her, you wander around the town, you um, uh, help feed a coin into a jukebox for some old dudes, and you just meet people. Um, which is, in my mind, what great horror does. It doesn't get straight to the money shot. It kind of, it, it, you know, it lets you get attached to things before it ruins them. Um, what it also does really, really well is ambushes you uh, because bad guys are made of darkness. So you be running along and the camera suddenly just jerks backwards and then you see the bad guys running at you and then it puts you back into where you are. You're basically defenseless. I've, I've never felt quite so vulnerable um, as I have during Alan Wake. And incidentally... Um, <clears throat> it has an excellent cliffhanger ending and a really solid-ish um, sequel. Um, but Alan Wake is a very conventional game in terms of how it scares you. It's got all the tropes of a horror film. Uh, it's, it's quite meta, but it, is just, it does just scare you as a, as a game. Um, the game I really want to talk about... Uh, Before you get on to the game, can I ask a yeah, question? Sure, sure. I'm just, I was just thinking... I've played the game too... Mm. In terms of, because it does draw heavily on film traditions and, and TV, Twin Peaks and so on, um, I mean, in film, the, the edits, the, the lighting, everything's sort of controlled for us, in a sense, and it happens to us. Mm. I mean, here, how, how do you think, I was just thinking of the light, the, the flashlight, um, it's, it's used as a weapon, but do you think it's something more than that? Because it sort of con- it's about concealing, revealing, and often it reveals things lurking in the darkness as well. Yeah, I actually felt um, I, some of the best moments in the game were where your batteries run out. Um, also, incidentally, very interestingly, they got sponsorship from Energizer. You can clearly see <laughs> you're actually picking up Energizer batteries, Energizer lithium batteries. And then I was at the shops and I'm like, can I have some lithium batteries? <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird because you, like, the, the beam of light is almost worse than being in pure darkness because you've just got this really stunted, myopic view of what's going on. And if you did see something within that light beam, typically you'd feel powerless. It also makes me feel a little bit um, regressed because as a kid, uh, my parents gave me a flashlight to kind of just, you know, because I had a massive fear of darkness. I suffered night terrors and had real issues with... I sound like a real pussy, don't I? Um, but, yeah, so it, it basically made me feel like a kid again. Um, a helpless uh, kid. Also, I think he's an alcoholic, so I was an alcoholic kid. Um, but yeah, I, I, just, I just think the mechanic of giving you a flashlight in a, in a world filled with darkness is just... I mean, it sounds trite, but it's just done so well. And the power's in your hands. You can scare the living daylights out of yourself by you know, moving the flashlight around and suddenly something appears. It is interesting watching someone else play the game and feeling frustrated like it's bad camera work. I'm like, you should just, you just clean shots, please. Yeah. Um, but also what's great in the game is you get... I don't, I don't think this is a spoiler. Um, you get to get into a car and then use the, the beams of the car in the same way you use the flashlight. So you're just like burning these guys to crisps as you drive along. It's pretty cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so I recently clocked 500 hours on Dark Souls, um, which is the kind of thing you'd say at an AA meeting. It's <laughs> like, that's too much, right? Like, you can do a lot of really productive things in 500 hours, but this game just made me its bitch, and I don't know... It's, it, look, back uh, when I had a, an NES, I played The Empire Strikes Back, 
which is a long, long, ruthlessly hard game, but it has the trappings of an RPG. So you can effectively unlock force powers and increase the power of your lightsaber and you know, pursue a narrative. But if you die, that's it. It, it just it, it screwed you over quite badly in that respect. And it was a real lesson in what bastards game developers can be if they choose to be. And it made me physically angry when I played it as a kid, which is something quite divorced from the, the horror in a game. Like I, I, I walked away from the game and I felt angry and it actually had infected everything I was doing for the next five or six hours. Um, and Dark Souls took that idea and just supercharged it and then just stuck it up my butt. Man, that game is just, it's messed up. It is conventionally scary. It has all the things that makes uh, a game truly scary. Like, uh, uh, we have slides. Um, do I just press? Okay, so this is one of the bosses. He's called Gravelord Nito, and he's literally made of corpses. Like, he's just a bundle of shambling corpses. And when you fight him, you're basically in a room that is pitch black. You can kind of hear him coming, but you can't really see him until he's right in front of you. Um, that's... That's just a good horror design. Um, the next boss we have is... Uh, that's the Gaping Dragon. Um, the first thing you see of the Gaping Dragon over this kind of precipice is just this little head poke up like a crocodile. And you're like, oh, that's cute. cute. And then this thing looms up and opens like a part of the body which I'm not going to talk about right now. Uh, and, then, and then you've got some pictures that I put in just because they're funny. Um, some... <laughs> if you're familiar with the game. Uh, the PC version came out recently and people realised that... Um, have you ever had something really horrible going on but there was really nice music playing so you feel like it's, it's just stripped away that kind of... It's just taken things down a notch so it's tolerable. Um, modding this game to make funny is just such a good way to defuse the tension. Uh, we've got another one here. Somebody put... Um... <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, especially in Alan Orlando, which is just one of the most stressful parts of the game. Uh, and this is uh, probably the best working title for the game um, <laughs> I come up with. Um, I should state uh, that um, I do have some footage of Dark Souls, and again, it's not me, but if you haven't played Dark Souls, you play... Uh, where do I start with Dark Souls? It's, it's basically... It, it's, it's often derisively referred to as a JRPG which is um, gamers' ways of saying uh, it's impenetrable and frustrating. But what it really is, and it is, it is all that. It's, it's so much more. Um, like I sound like a drug addict, just about to get another hit. Basically, you play the chosen undead, and you come to, and you're told to like save the world, or whatever. There's minimal interaction with NPCs, and when, it, when there is, it's very cryptic. Um, there's little to no tutorial, and you save progress by lighting bonfires. Now, what happens is, you light a bonfire and you die. You get to go back to that previous bonfire, but bonfires are far and few between. And every bad guy you fought so hard to kill between each bonfire instantly comes back to life. And you lose all the souls that you were carrying at the time. Um, which seems really cruel. And it is, but it makes you a better player. The first time I played this game, I had that same experience of just like fear and anger that I had with The Empire Strikes Back. Um, but I was so angry I couldn't play it for four months. Uh, I, I, I literally threw it across the room and was really frustrated. But then I thought, no, I need, I need to be good at this. I need to be good at this because as gamers, we do feel like there's this thing that we're good at and we feel like we have ownership over it. And you secretly think that, fuck, I'm a gamer. Like, I, I should be able to d play anything and become good at it if I work hard enough. And I had this kind of eye-to-tiger montage of just, like, training myself to be good at this game. Um, 
500 hours later, I've got a problem. Basically, I'm going to show you uh, a quick bit of footage from um, the Giant's Tomb, which is uh, part of the game where you can either have a shield out, which is the only way to survive in this game, or a lamp. And because you can't see a foot in front of you, uh, you're kind of screwed. So you're literally forced to alternate between holding up a lamp and a shield. Uh, but we do have some footage from the Giant's Tomb. Mm. That guy sucked. <laughs> he, first mistake was climbing down the ladder. You don't touch ladders in this game. You just jump and thrust. Um, Dark Souls uh, makes you feel alone. Uh, and not just because no one will talk to you because you're playing nothing but Dark Souls. Um, it makes you feel alone because there's no music except for the boss fights. So you don't get that kind of warm, like ambient blanket of just background noise. All you hear is your breathing and uh, your footsteps, and you don't even hear the bad guys coming most of the time. Um, but uh, Demon Souls, which is kind of the spiritual predecessor to this game, had a piece of music, which I forgot to bring, which perfectly captures the overall um, philosophy of these games. It's literally like a few piano notes and then like 10 seconds of nothing. And then a few piano notes and then 10 seconds of nothing. You literally spend half your time wandering around just shitting yourself in this game. And I know I'm not really selling it. I know I'm not making it sound like it's fun. But it is in the same way that eventually Groundhog Day was fun for Bill Murray. You know that point halfway through the film where he stopped killing himself and started being nice to homeless people? Uh, this game does that because you walk into a room, scared out of your wits, and you encounter some bad guy and you get killed. So you go back and then you enter that same room again and you know how, what he's going to do. So you, you block it, but he's come from a different direction. Uh, then you do it again and you finally kill him. Uh, ten hours later, you are walking through these rooms just like block, block, stab, stab, traffic. You know, like it becomes this pattern and you learn how to be good. It's the first game I've played where I've, uh, fear has made me a better gamer. And it's also um, the first game I've played where the character doesn't gain experience, you do. So the character incrementally gets better, but it's you as a person that has to gain the skills to become uh, a better gamer. And it's all because you're scared. You're scared you'll lose all your souls. You're scared you'll lose your progress. And also, you carry that rage across um, to real life. So where uh, does the pleasure come from? Where's the, the build-up, the addiction that you've had with it? Well, I mean, you finish the game eventually. Well done. Um, you're a psychopath. And then what happens is it takes your fully powered character, and many games have this, and dumps you in new game plus mode. And you've got all your gear, and you're like, great, great, I'm done. I'm, oh, those bad guys over there are really easy. And you're fully decked out, so you figure you may as well just, you know, backstab a few guys. And before you know it, you've done new game plus three times. Um, so I've done, I took a pyromancer through new game plus four times, and then I clocked 350 hours on the Xbox. I was shooting a show in Sydney, I was alone in my hotel room. And I had a few drinks, and I locked the Xbox in one of those safes in the, in the closet. And then I went to sleep and woke up and had forgotten the combination. Uh, that's a true story. That's how I don't have my, I don't have my saves. I don't have my Xbox anymore. Uh, but uh, the PC version came out. And I thought, oh, I'll give it a try, because they released new content for the PC version. And uh, I am getting the mannerisms and handshaking of an actual drug addict now. This game actually has made me into a bit of a monster. And so I played the PC version, and I played uh, uh, 200-ish hours on the PC. Um, again, I, I think it's because I was bullied a lot as a kid, and uh, the idea that I could go back to school and beat the crap out of the people who were so much bigger and stronger and greater than me, uh, you obviously can't do that, because uh, they're all posting photos of themselves with their stupid fat children on Facebook now. 
um, or they're working at suburban RSLs. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But it's something that you can make your bitch, and I mean that in the nicest way possible. You can take this thing which intimidated you and made you feel so terribly afraid as a gamer, which is a pretty rare experience as a gamer. Games these days tend to kind of hold your hand a lot. And you can take that fear and you can just, you just become this master at the game. Ironically, in doing that, uh, you, you lose all the social skills and friends that you had that you were trying to impress. Um, but it really is one of the first games where, where fear has become uh, a, a tool that you can use. Uh, I'm starting to sound like Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say you stripped back the game and yeah. it was no longer a horror game and it was just a straight action game. Right. What would, what would have been taken away from the experience in terms of the pleasure you get from it. Yeah. Let's say it was the, the greatest action game you've ever played. Mm. What would be missing? Um, it's also deeply interwoven because it wasn't until the second playthrough when all the fear had subsided that I actually started to notice the narrative, which is really beautiful and kind of minimal. It's like a dark Miyazaki kind of story. Mm. It's got this real, I mean, there's all this intrigue and you look at items. Okay, so I killed this dude by accident called Solaire who's like one of the best characters in the game. I killed him, and he was such a sweet guy. And then I'm reading the flavour text on his items, and it said this was handstakingly hand-painted by Solaire while he was alone and listening to violin music or something to that effect. And I was like, holy shit, what have I done? So the next playthrough, I was doubly nice to him, but then he went mad and had this maggot on his head. It all just gets so, like, the plot is there, mm. but you don't see it unless you, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it is touted as being unreasonably hard. But, I mean, you can, you can make yourself good at anything, provided you're willing to sacrifice oxygen, you know? But it's that kind of mastery along with the horror elements that attracts you to it. Well, I mean, like I said, it is, it is horror in that it's got the scary shit that a horror game should have, mm. and then it's horror in that it turns you into a monstrous addict. If you want to beat it, <laughs> you need to put time in. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of um, a lot of horror games deal with this by, you know, like you say in a horror in a movie, a character will have to do something stupid to put themselves at risk, and the horror games have traditionally done this by kind of making it difficult for you to kind of run around, or for or putting characters in situations where they don't have to do something stupid, or where the options are limited. So they basically reduce the capability of the characters. So most of the best horror games, people who aren't, can't do a lot, like Alan Wake, like it's flashlight. So instead of, because games are so about, like, I can stack up a million shotguns on my back. Um, <laughs> if they reduce that to, like, a simple few things, and I'll talk about some examples later, but it's all about, like, making the same concept, which is lack of capability, in a different way. And so it's, it's always about sort of petering out your ability to deal with the horrible things. That's what kind of makes it interesting. It's a very simple mechanic as well, and that's, that's a perfect one. A, a game that, I guess it was designed as a, I suppose an unsettling game, which was basically set in, in a science fiction setting, and that was System Shock 2. And the, the, the scariest thing, well, there's two major things about System Shock 2 that are really, really scary, but one of the main things is just simply, sure, you've got a gun, and most of the time you're lucky if you've got two bullets, and that in itself all of a sudden becomes really... Because like most games, it's like, yeah, there's a thousand zombies, bang, 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 not a problem. And so it's, it's, those things are more just logistics. 
It's kind of like an accounting game by counting zombies. Whereas it, all of a sudden, if you've got two bullets, it's like mm. I've got to make a decision of when I'm, you know, going to use these things. Uh, and the thing that it makes it even better in, in System Shock 2 is that there are a, a zombie kind of thing, but it's one of the first games ever that actually dealt with them in a completely separate way. It's like normally zombies come at you and are trying to claw your eyes out. These zombies stagger into the room and go, I'm sorry, kill me, because they actually are aware of what's happening to them. And so you've got these things shambling into the room, apologising before they try, and it just feels really, really horrible. So it's, the horror is less that you're scared that something's going to come in because it might kill you. It's more the case of like, you know, it's, it's, you, I reckon you could make a really successful horror game where the entire process was you had to get through the game by kicking puppies. Because the next room's like, oh my God, it's full of puppies. I've got to kick 50 puppies. Oh God, no. And, and the horror is in your actions rather than what's going to happen to you. So it's, a, again, that sort of mm. idea of limitations. Yeah, there was gameplay footage released recently of The Last of Us, which is the next game from um, Naughty Dog, the guys who do Uncharted. And in the gameplay footage, uh, this is kind of a, like a tangent about how horror and fear are quite disparate. Uh, fear and horror... Look, in this game, you play a grizzled dude escorting a teenage girl across basically a Cormac McCarthy-esque kind of wasteland. So everyone is out to kill each other or eat each other or both. Um, preferably. And, uh, and inevitably. But basically what happens is in this scene, you enter this apartment and then halfway through the apartment, the guy realises there's people everywhere and he's got two bullets and his hand's shaking. So he misses the first shot and he's got one bullet. And he ends up taking a guy hostage and bluffing. And there's just so much play. Like, I think horror games can be, if they're done badly, which they often are, um, quite juvenile because they're kind of, they, they fall into the category of genre pieces, whereas good horror is more like suspense. It just it mm. plays on what you are as a person you're afraid of, like, uh, like killing someone who's apologising to you. Or um, in Sleeping Dogs, uh, you are a cop doing good and bad stuff. And at one point, you literally have to throw a guy into a meat grinder. Uh, and that was difficult for me because I was convinced that I could take the moral high ground, but they literally said, no, no, you have to do it this way. Um, and that was really unpleasant because you can kind of hear them talking beforehand and you know that they're getting along and you know they've had a long night at work and then you've got to saw this guy in half and it's just, like, that's real fear to me. Yeah. Do you think it would be worse if you were playing online horror game? What do you mean? Well, if you knew you were playing against a player who actually existed in the real world. Oh, somewhere. hell no, players are fine because players are... <laughs> Players become part of this just, you know, like bowling ball return shoot mentality of like they can come back whenever they want. But in the narrative of the game, you kill a character, generally speaking, they're dead. Even in games where you as a person can respawn, if a character in the narrative gets killed, like in World of Warcraft, they kill off major characters and at no point do they go, like we can't res them? Like it's, it's very frustrating. But in the world of the narrative, if someone dies, they're dead, but you have this uncanny, unspoken of ability that you can come back. So, yeah. 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 I've been gaming all day, by the way, like literally since 7 a.m., so I'm, my, my social skills are shot. Um, so I apologise. Well, this is a good time to shift over to Stefan. <laughs> <laughs> Before you. Yeah. We don't want you getting sort of uh, stressed. Stefan Schutz. Stefan's become, uh, has been a composer and a sound designer in games, in the games industry for over 10 years. And recently he created the first Australian-produced sound library, um, since the 50s at least. Uh, and it's been distributed worldwide and accessible online. Um, and there's currently negotiation with <coughs> the Australian National Film Sound Archive, sorry, <coughs> to introduce it into their collection. And um, he was telling me earlier that there's 25,000 
um, sound effects in this collection. It's wow. pretty amazing. He's composed music for many game titles over the course of his career, and he's um, he's also the first person to compose a fully orchestral game score in Australia, and has produced several scores working with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Um, and Stefan's now involved with the creation of generative musical scores, which is pretty out there and um, amazing, given new directions with um, sound and music. Um, so it's moving away from traditional. Uh, sort of confines of time and linearity, and he's also considered one of the world's leading authorities on working with FMOD, which is the game industry premier sound engine and authoring software, and he's also given many lectures and conference papers on um, this work as well. And Stefan, tonight is going to be talking us a bit, to, a bit about the, the function and role of sound and music in horror games too, so take Thank it away. Um, interesting, my background's a lot like yours. In, in, like I, I had bad <coughs> dreams as well um, when I was very, very young. And it's interesting that um, I don't know that I'd go as far as night terrors, but definitely bad dreams. But I was also not treated brilliantly at school. Um, but it's funny, I don't, I've never really equated the whole idea of getting in games as being sort of payback. Oh, no, actually, maybe I do. Maybe I do, because when I do play games, it was what I was saying before, and this is not necessarily related to horror, but it is re- related to narrative. Um, we were just talking before um, you guys came in um, about various games, and, and I actually struggled to play uh, the bad guy characters. And I tried it once in a, in a game called Knights of the Old Republic. I played through the whole game as a, as a good guy, Jedi, and you know, I'm all holy and righteous, and that was great. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll go back and play the game again. So I, I, I played the game again as, as a bad guy. And, and you know, I was, I was you know, kicking puppies and, 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 and you know, yelling at grandmothers and all that sort of stuff and doing all the bad Jedi sorts of things. But this only lasted about 30% through the game. And, and at one point, you're sent off to this other planet, and I rock up this planet, and there's all these, these evil sort of slave guys, and they're all, you know, beating up on the Wookiees and everything like that. And one of them's like, oh, yeah, look, you know, come over here and beat up some Wookiees. And I'm just like, no, 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 this stops here. Pulled out my lightsaber and just slaughtered all of the slavers. And the game goes, congratulations, you know, you are now on the light side. And all the Wookiees go, hooray! And I'm just like, where did that come from? And, and, and I think it, it might have been related to that whole, the whole injustice of seeing somebody powerful beating up on somebody less powerful and the idea that, like, wow, I've got a lightsaber and I can stop you doing that. Too bloody right I'm going to. Yeah. And it really was that sort of, like, the, the injustice thing of it, just, like, I, I just couldn't tolerate it. And it's, it was kind of funny. And I think bringing this into the, the horror genre, in that the horror genre kind of has injustice all the way through it, in that more often than not... Um, you're put in a situation which you, by choice, just wouldn't be in. You know, somewhere horrible, surrounded by some things horrible, and you've got to try and survive. And as I was saying before, the likelihood is you've got two bullets and and you've got to try and get through all this sort of stuff. But really, where horror often comes from, um, for us at least as humans, is something that's not quite right. It's not... Uh, like there are, there are horror where you say, I mean, the, the, the suggestion you gave of the, this giant god that's all made up of, of corpses and everything like that, that's a really extreme horror. But I find personally quite often the things that are, are very effective is things that just are, are close to right but not quite right. Um, can we have up the first slide of mine? All right, so, and, and there's a sound that I'll, I'll put to, to put this into, into context of what we're, what we're looking at. <laughs> You know, and, and that's the recording of, of a child, I don't know, roughly about the right age. Can I switch over to the next one? Yes. So here we have an image of a child 
But if we advance it to... Oh, point up there. Okay. Here we go. And all of a sudden, the image from the rear has been revealed to us. And again, it's not grotesque. It's not slimy or mutant or whatever. It's just there's something very, very wrong about it. Now, all of a sudden... That same sound takes on an entirely different meaning. And in fact, if we limit it even further to something where during the course of the game you'd know, you knew that there was something like that around, you'd seen it briefly and you know, feet, had, you know, feet had run off into the distance. But then if it get, then gets limited down to something that's just a single one or even worse... Now, there's an element of you've got to do it correctly. I'm just grabbing a file and looping it. But all of a sudden, it's not what we expect. It's not right. And it's not a giant god made up of lots of corpses. It's a little girl who just happens to not have anything where her face should be. This is all Freud's idea of the uncanny, that you're making the the, the familiar unfamiliar. Exactly. And I think in some ways, the closer something is to being real but then some small thing is just slightly wrong, can be far more disturbing than the giant, multi-tentacle, slimy monster. Yes? Um, the best example I ever had, and it's one that actually still has an effect to me today, is I still get a chill every time I see the name Alma, the main antagonist of the Fear series. Fear 1 was one of the scariest ones I've seen, because so often you would come across this character, and it's much like that little girl, and it's just... She appears and disappears. And it's just, you know, there's one time where you go down a ladder and you start on the ladder and then the, you see the legs of the other main antagonist appear. You get down to the bottom of the ladder, you turn around and there's Alma walking into you, dematerialising as she walks in. And that was just... Three playthroughs later, I'm still... The two of the scariest things in in media in general is clowns. Clowns are evil, all right? (laughs) Clowns are just evil. There is just no no two ways about it. But little girls, you know, and and years ago, and again, we were talking about this, I think, in in one of the Baldur's Gate games, you know, you've gone through this giant dungeon thing all the way through, and you walk into the final room, and there's a little girl standing there, and I'm like, oh, God, this is going to be so bad. And it's like, you know, because she's just sitting there, she's quite happy. And you just like, it's like, it's just a little girl. But you know that something is going to be so wrong about that little girl. It's like, can I go back to the previous room where there was a ruddy big dragon? Because I'd much rather take on the dragon than the little girl. So, you know, you get these sorts of things. And so you get, it's, it's, it's when things are not quite in context. This is my cat. My cat is called Anixia. And you look at this and it's like, ah, look, she's so cute. And she is. She's adorable. But again, contextually, if that's the sound that is being emanating from that picture, there is something not quite right. Now, it may be funny or it may be scary depending on the context, but it's still something that's not quite right. Now, the interesting thing is, uh, this, uh, uh, what I've just done here is actually using this process um, that you just mentioned that's called generative audio. What this is actually doing is getting a single sound file and it is playing it 
repeatedly with only about a tenth of a second. And then it's spawning a hundred of them. So it's layering hundreds and hundreds of them. If you want to hear the actual sound file, that's Anixia. So what I just played you was Anixia. But we played around with it a little bit. So this is the thing, is that I think what you do is if you take something that is fairly normal and you change it into something that's not quite right. I mean, look at this. Look at this out of context. It's a guy with a giant triangle for a head. I've got this great idea for a game for you. I'm pitching this to you, and the bad guy's going to be this guy, and he's got a big triangle for a head. You'd be like, dude, that sounds lame. Anybody who's played this game, this thing when you first see it is absolutely terrifying. It doesn't move quickly. He just, he's got this cleaver thing that he drags on behind him. And the first time you see him, he barely hurts you. Because by the time he's gone, clunk, you're kind of like, okay, I'll step over here. And yet, from this point onwards, anytime you hear a giant metal scraping sound somewhere, your blood runs cold. Absolutely. It's literally, uh, excuse the term, but raping one of its own monsters. Well, actually, what it does from memory is, you, yes, you're stuck in a cupboard with slats and you see this thing move into a room and you're just like, oh. oh it's like a pyramid head Dennis Hopper from Blue Velvet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there are these things that are basically, uh, that I, I don't think they're even real things. They're, they're basically, they're just, they're just mannequins. But what he does uh, from memory is he actually does some unspeakable things to, I think, two of them, and then what you end up getting as a byproduct of him doing that is this. That's a mannequin. And, in fact, all it is is the bottom half of a mannequin with the top half of a mannequin on it. And, again, a shop mannequin, two ends of a shop mannequin. This is in my pitch. You're, you're really not liking this by this stage because I've got a giant triangular head and, and shop mannequins that are supposed to be scary. But, again, the thing in this that really throws it out is the way that they are animated, the way they move is so wrong. And we actually have to thank the Japanese for this because I think the Japanese really were the people who first mastered this. The idea of getting something that looks fairly normal, like a human being, arms and legs, and then bending them over backwards to the point where their arms would snap and their legs would snap and they're moving like a spider or a cockroach. Humans don't move like that. And when you see a human move like that, everything in your brain screams, that's wrong. I feel that way about pole vaulters as well. <laughs> yes! I mean, have you, have you ever actually... Um, um, hurdlers, watch a slowed, down, a, a slowed down race of hurdlers and it's like, your body's not supposed to move like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's, there's things like that that if you speed things up, slow things down or animate them beyond... Like, if, if all of a sudden I was here and I just grabbed my arm and bent it back that way, I think most of you would probably be very, very unhappy with it, as would I. Um, because it's just, you know that it's not supposed to do that. And so a lot of what we do is we take things that are mostly right, I think, and we, we alter them just slightly to make them unsettling. Now, I'm going to actually play a couple of pieces of music, um, or at least one. I'm going to mix this into sort of what we are discussing here. Now, I'm not going to give you... Some of you might know what this is, and if you do, please don't say anything. Um, couple of things I want you to do. I'm, I'm not going to say anything else because I, I don't want to create a context for it. But I want to suggest that you might experience this a little bit uh, from a, a different point of view if you actually close your eyes. Because human beings, we are way, way too focused on our, uh, our sense of sight. 
And if you've got your eyes open, you'll be looking at the image there and you'll be looking at these guys and you'll be looking at each other, etc. Close your eyes while I play this and have a listen to it. And don't try to put it into a context, just experience it for what it is. There's a couple of reasons why this uh, as a piece sort of works. One of them is that, again, we've taken something that is familiar, i.e. music, and we've brought in something that's just not quite right. We've got sort of industrial clanging and banging sounds, and that sort of is a little bit wrong. But the other thing is, is that those sounds are actually uncomfortable to listen to. There's a, a mixture of frequencies, and they're a bit harsh, and they're kind of loud and everything like that. And it, it's kind of like, you know, if I sat down and basically, you know, smashed glass and, and scratched my nails down at a blackboard-type thing, you'd just be like, oh, you know, and you're going, it's going to unsettle you. So the music in this particular case is going to accompany some sort of actions, but it's not something that's basically, I think you mentioned a calming sort of backdrop. This is very sort of harsh and confronting. And so it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's putting you on edge. So we've got things where um, uh, familiarity but not quite is one aspect. And the other thing that we were talking about before of one of the main things that induces horror, terror or fear is basically we have to have an investment in our situation. And I think with Dark Souls, as you were saying, you've invested so much time and effort to get there. And so your fear is, oh, my God, if this thing gets me, I'm going to die. and I'm going to have to go back and do six more hours again. You know? And, and th that's the whole point. If there's no consequence, and I think this is one of the things, one of the problems I had with something like World of Warcraft. You die and have to spend five minutes running back to your body. There's, there's, there's such a little consequence that was such an a minor inconvenience that it didn't really feel like much. Um, and it's funny that one of the, the games that I found recently that I found really, really quite scary, not terrifying, but scary, has actually been Minecraft. Because when you're doing things, and, and one of the things in Minecraft that I enjoy is actually finding, there are mines actually in Minecraft. If you dig down, you actually find mines that have been built by somebody else and that are abandoned, right? And you can hear monsters in them and everything like that. But there are things where there'll be like tunnels shooting off in every direction. And it's like, okay there's a chance that something's going to creep up behind me. And I can't just run up and jump over the hill like I can when I'm above the surface, right? And one of the, the scariest things in Minecraft is that the most dangerous thing in the whole thing is completely silent except for the two or one second before it explodes. And one of the scariest sounds in computer games made in the last 10 years is before a creeper blows up behind you. And in most cases, by the time you've heard it, all, all, the only thing you've got time to do is close your eyes and go, oh, crap. <laughs> You know, and, and so it, it's, it's because I put so much effort into building it and collecting all the minerals and all that sort of stuff and say, like, oh, I'm going to die. And in Minecraft, there's a chance that if you're far away from where the last time you slept, you won't get back to your body in time and you will lose the stash of diamonds you're carrying, which are really, really rare. So there's an investment and there's a threat to you. And this is the whole point. In this particular room, we're not really going to feel scared. Because we're, all, we're, all, we're safe here. We've, we've got people we're talking to and everything. So there's nothing really that is, is there to scare us so much. Oh, I was considering hiring a friend to dress up as Slender Man and just <laughs> from the back. Well, see, this is one of the interesting <laughs> things. I had a, 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 an idea years ago that if, if, uh, of, of writing like a stage play or something that was dealing with fear and stuff like that. And the mm. first thing I would actually do, if, if this was it, if this was the performance tonight of this particular thing and I wanted it to be a scary thing, the first thing I would do is say, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Now we'll have the ushers come around and reseat you all. And I would take you away from the person you came along with. And I'd put you next. So you're not sitting next to the people that you know. So right from the word go, we've made you feel just that little bit unsettled. Oh, where's my, my friends way back? Over? You know what I mean? And so you're on edge from the very word go. This is the sort of thing that we need to do. Um, I think, um, one of the most 
one of the reasons the Silent Hill games, for me anyway, was so powerful and also successful is because the horror works on two levels. I think on the one level you, you're dealing with the kind of imagery and sound that you're being confronted with, and that falls, makes you freeze and try to examine and make sense of like this uncanny creature that's coming towards you. But on another level, it's also about the gameplay, and that, I think, shifts over to terror. Which, yes. Because we're involved sort of in actively escaping or destroying these creatures. And I, I think that's sort of... Uh, but the sound, I think plays a crucial role as well, as, as you've said. Sound, and I think sound, we underestimate yeah. the extent of impact that sound has on us when we play these games. Find, find the, the scariest game that you've ever played or the scariest film you've ever played and watch it and turn the sound off. It'll lose most of its impact. Not even 50%, it'll lose most of its well, impact. Well, John it'll Carpenter, lose. when he did Halloween, he showed the first cut to the, the studio um, heads without sound. They hadn't done the sound yet. And they said, are you crazy? We're not going to support this film. Then went back, having added the soundtrack, and they were just sold straight yeah. away. Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine and I watched uh, The Human Centipede, but one of us uh, was blindfolded and just listened to it really loud. And, the other one, and I watched it, and I had a playlist of really awesomely happy music. And it just, it literally, it made it into a farce. Like, mm. it, it, the two need to be together for it to work mm. on any level. Uh, there's, there's actually a whole bunch of YouTube videos on videos watching other people play... Uh, amnesia and they're really interesting you, you've even seen a room full of like big burly guys sitting fully lit in this room and they are squealing like five-year-old children they're just like Aah! and and it's funny when you watch actual game one of the bits of the game one of the scariest bits is this room and there's this guy up on a table and the thing that's in the room that's terrifying him is completely visible so there's there's not actually a nasty ugly looking monster there's just this presence that he knows that, that the whole atmosphere of the whole thing has wound him up to the point where they, he's just terrified of this thing that's in completely invisible. Um, can we run the video that I've... Can I do that with this? Mm-mm. Nope. Oh, oh, we there we go. Now, that's a very, very short example. And there's a reason why I, I showed that. And I'm going to finish off by talking about Dead Space and why I think Dead Space was an incredibly successful game as far as being a scary game. That is actually uh, footage that I captured myself. So that is me playing. Um, and I cut the scene before it. The scene before it is actually fighting this really, really rather horrible life form that's sort of stuck to the wall and it's wailing and screaming and being like that. And I didn't want to show that because that bit wasn't relevant. The scene I just showed you is where most of the fear occurs. Because once the monster's attacking you, the adrenaline's kicked in. You've got your fight or flight response and you've either run away or you're fighting. And if you're fighting by that stage, you're not really scared. You're cautious and you're fighting for your life. But fear has by that stage left. Uh, you notice when I get to the top of the lift, he stands there for quite a while before he actually moves down the corridor. That's because I'm going through every single weapon and trying to reload everything and going, two bullets, one bullet, two bullets, oh crap. Um, then walk down the corridor. And it's the corridors. It's the empty spaces where nothing happens. And I'll give you the perfect example. In this exact same game, I had gone into a room and all hell had broken loose and there's, there's monsters coming through the ceiling and th- smashing through glass doors and coming out of cupboards and all this stuff. And... You know, there's this, this horrible fight, and I just like I, I, you know, you know, managed to kill them all off and everything like that. And the, 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 there's two things about the consequence of this. One, it set me up to okay, that room was fairly scary, and they came out of everywhere, and I felt very, very vulnerable. Again, what you were talking about before, Vun- vulnerability is very, very important for this. The other thing is that I bled out all my ammunition, so now my investment is feeling much, much higher because it's like okay, if this happens again, I'm toast, right? So, all right, go down a corridor like this, feeling really bad, come to another room, open the door, and it's basically like a sick bay. And there's, there's an operating table there, 
and there's blood and, and instruments on the table. And I look around the room and there's a door there and there's a window over there and there's two or three vents there and there's a vent over in the wall and there's all these cupboards and I've just gone, oh, this is just going to be so bad. I spent 20 minutes in this room. It was the scariest room in the entire game. Nothing happened. <laughs> and it was... If, I, I don't know whether they planned it this way. If they didn't, it was just one of those beautiful coincidences. But if they did, it was just psychologist-level genius in that they had gotten me so keyed to being afraid of the ducts and the ceiling and the windows and the doors and the cupboards that I basically went through this room with a fine-tooth comb really carefully, you know, hiding behind my gun with my two bullets in it the whole way. And I was terrified the whole time, thinking, and the longer I spent in that room, the bigger the monster that was going to come bursting in got. And there was nothing that happened. And that was the best room in the entire game. It was the best room in the entire experience because they, what they had done in crafting this experience had allowed my own imagination to take hold. And um, my imagination is far more capable of creating something terrifying to me than anything that anybody else can do. And it's basically like the, the, the way they used to do things with the old um, horror films. They'd show you a shadow or you know, a little bit of movement or something like that, but they wouldn't show you the monster. In those days, it was for technical issues. But I think some of the problems we have these days is that we, we're in too much of a rush for the big reveal and to show you the ugly monster. And it's like, okay, now what? Yeah, horror is well, as much about the conceal as well, it is about yeah. the reveal. And, and in this particular game, the other thing that this game did is that it didn't do the cheap shot. So many games that I've played in the past is you open a door and the monster goes, boom. That's not scaring me. That's startling me. And that's really easy to do. Again, you get one of your friends to come in here and in the middle of this while we turn the lights off, walk up to somebody and just clap. Mm. Great. There's nothing clever about that. And I expected Dead Space to do this because it's a convention within, within computer games. So every time a door opened, you had to put your gun down to open the door. So every time I opened a door, I would quickly bring the gun back up ready for this. No point in time during the entire game did I open a door and have a, mo a monster go boo. There was one time in the game when I opened a door and there was a monster on the other side and I opened the door and the monster's there and the monster turned, looked at me and ran away. And I, I was just so startled by the fact that this monster hadn't leapt out at me and had run away. I've gone, oh my God, that, that's just so... I've never had that happen. That's just, he's just run away down the corridor and turned the corner and, oh crap, where's he gone? <laughs> and again, that length of corridor was, again, really, really terrifying. And I never saw him again. So they used the, these mechanics in such a beautiful way and it was crafted so well that it was more scary because it wasn't doing what everybody else has done. Question? One, I'm glad you mentioned Dead Space. To me, Dead Space just captured atmosphere so spot on. And one thing, the aliens that are, or zombies, the necromorphs, the corpses with alien infest on them and they come alive again. And I remember that being the game, but one thing that absolutely terrified me was you had to go get the captain's key card. And when you found it at the start of the game, you find out that all the zombies are people. And if you get corpses, you're in trouble. And they get told, oh, you've got to find the captain's key card. They go, well, where is it? And they say, oh, it's at the mall. And you, had, you know something's going to happen. And just like with, uh, there's a bit in Alan Blake, when you find a, a little page from your book, it says, down the road, you heard a noise and it was some serial killer axe man. And you walk up that road and you hear a noise in the bush and you go, ah, oh, it creates this atmosphere of expectation. And that's where it either gets you and you go, fight or, uh, fight, or fight here it comes in. Mm. Or you just go, I know it's going to happen, I know it's mm. going to happen. Crap, it's happened. What, what is it? 
there's a page that ends in, and then I heard the chainsaw, and I'm like, oh, god damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but expectation, and that's the point. It's expectation um, uh, mixed in with the, the investment in, well, I don't want anything horrible to happen sort of stuff. And they're, they're those sorts of things combined. So the scariest times in the games quite often are the times when there's nothing around, not when there's the betentacle beastie or whatever. It's when there's an empty... Like, you walk into a room, and it's really big, and it's empty. Exactly. And when it doesn't happen, it's even better because the longer it doesn't happen, the bigger that ambush is. Oh, my God, they've gone to get more monsters. And so the, 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 the long... I mean, obviously, it needs a resolution eventually. But in a lot of cases, you can string this out for just really a lot longer than you might expect because the, 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 the people are just getting really, 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 really tense thinking. And then there's a couple of times where they do this for two or three rooms and you're just... Just long enough for you to subconsciously start to lower your guard. And then the Ah, uh, yes, and a lot of games do that. They'll basically, like, you walk into a room and a zombie that looks dead on the floor gets up and attacks you. Ah, I've learned. So the next room you walk into, bang, bang, you, you shoot the zombie. Next room, bang, bang, you shoot the zombie. Next room, bang, bang. And none of them have all been alive. And after 20, 30 rooms, it's like, oh, well, yeah, okay, no, okay. You walk into another room, yeah, okay, I can't be... Ah, and he gets up and he attacks you. Because they, they've, they've spaced it so well yeah. that you've killed everyone carefully to make sure they're not going to get back up. And after a while, you get complacent. And complacency is when the zombie apocalypse will happen. There's a bit in Alan Wake where they give you so many weapons. And you know when you get given a lot of ammunition weapons <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, this is like a gift because I'm about to be tested. And I didn't fight a single bad guy for 20 minutes. I'm just walking around going, where are they? Where are they? Where are they? I have so many weapons. And then it was just, it's so clever, you know? Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a door, and outside the door there's all the ammo chests. It's like, I don't want to go into the door. <laughs> <laughs> um, Stefan, would you say that there's a, been a key turning point in game design, and sound design in particular, that's sort of shifted um, and, and created a far more effective atmosphere in horror games in particular? Um, Look, there, there is, and it's funny, it's related to sound design, but I think it's less about the actual sounds and more about um, the, 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 the key point where games really turned for me into being something that were really, really worth experiencing is when the narrative kicked in. And, and now this one's not really a scary game, but I'll mention it briefly, is that um, one of my favourite games of all time is Bioshock 2. And a lot of people can Bioshock 2. They, they said, oh, I said it's not as good as the first one, it's more of the same. Bioshock 2 for me, it was the entire game was about the narrative. The narrative was the most essential part. And the thing about Bioshock 2 is that I will flag as being successful is I don't have a parental bone in my body. Don't have children, never really felt the need to have children. I played Bioshock 2 and hearing the scream of the little girls put me into a blind rage and I would just hurl myself into the room and say, you get the fuck away from her. And I would just go nuts until everything was dead. And it's like, you do not touch the little sisters. And for me to get that invested in the story, and I've done an uh, analysis of, of, of Bioshock 2, and there are some things about it that are remarkable, and it's all about the story. So from a sound point of view, we're getting better scripts with really good voice actors. And there's nothing that will damage a game more than walking into a room and having really bad voice acting that just makes you feel like, oh, God, I'm watching a really bad advert on television. I don't care about these characters. Yeah. You know? Do you all think that horror relies on a kind of realistic effect? No. No. Absolutely not. No. It can be a hundred different things that can get there. Like any... any um, if they, they used to say um, 
many years ago about horror film that it was the it was the the multi bread in the kitchen, but it can be anything that goes wrong. Mm. Um, anything can can get there. It's an effect, not a process. And you can get games with terrible production values. And I've got an example actually of um, when I when I talk in a bit about uh, games that, that it looks terrible. It it plays terrible. The sound is terrible. The voice acting is terrible. But somehow you get there, and it's about, it's about an end result um, and an experience at the end. You can get, I mean, going back all the way through the history of video games, you've got unintended effects based upon both high production values and low production values. And the pursuit of realism was, day, was there day one, and it will continue no matter how many polygons machines throw out. And it's, it's one stylistic pursuit, one arms race amongst many now, but it's certainly not the only one. But it's the creative side is far more important than the tech side. I mean, System Shock 2, which I mentioned before, was really old, and the graphics on that was really... I mean, basically, the, those zombies I was talking about, their, he- their heads were almost triangles because there was only that many polygons, and yet they'd walk into a room with a sort of a, a staggering limp and apologise to you, and it was just like, oh, my God, get away from me. And, it, like, the graphics was awful. I think there's a question there, too. Mm. Yes and no. So that, that scene I just showed you, right, as I said, that was just after I'd walked into a room and there's this thing that's sort of like glued to the wall and it's throwing horrible stuff at you. And the thing is, what's unsettling about that is you're fighting, but it's, 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 it's got horror in it and the thing is screaming in agony. It's a human being that's been turned into this kind of like horrible, you know, bile projector and, and the best way to kill it is to set it on fire and burn it alive. And so it's, it's just horribly screaming in pain and agony and all that sort of stuff. But the thing is, once you've all finished it, there's about a two-second thing of like, okay, recovery. And then what the situation is, is exactly what I said there. It's like, I've got no ammunition left. Bam, the tension's gone straight back up. Because the next monster that comes along, if, it is, if I don't have time to get to all those chests full of ammunition, I'm vulnerable. So I've gone in and I've fought the monster, but I've bled myself of the resources that have been able to protect me. So I'm instantly more vulnerable than I was before that monster. So sure, I've killed him. But if the next room has a monster in it and I don't have time, then I'm in even more strife than I was before I came into that room. So, yeah. Did you have a a question? Um, I was just going to say, following up from that situation, uh, you guys said you played through the Silent Hill series. Did you play through uh, Silent Hill Shattered Memories? I'm actually a total snob. I've only played two. I've never played. No, I have. Yeah. <laughs> because all the other ones, every review was just like, it's not as good as two, and I went, oh well. Yeah. <laughs> I've played. Yeah, so with the Shattered Memories, in every Silent Hill game, it's been panned because of the combat in it. That's part of the review. Yeah. But part of the process of, of getting into games is learning never to read a review. Yeah. Well, <laughs> especially if you work on them. Yeah. No, if you ever work on games, never read a review. Yeah. But, <laughs> Well, I've got a. I've, but this is kind of related to what it's you were fundamental. Saying. It's pretty fundamental horror, te- like horror concept, which yeah. is, which is the lack of capability, and it's a key you can turn many, many different ways, and it's been turned many, many different ways in all media, in horror art, for example, in horror drawing, you've and gore drawing, you've got a long, long hundred, hundreds of years of history of people matching like extreme gore 
with the vulnerability of, of a subject. And it's, it's, it's one of the fundamental pillars, really, of, of the horror mentality going back. Um, in games, with shattered memories and games like it, the key gets turned perhaps too far for a lot of people, which is you need a kind of... You need a concept that you can act or you need a promise that you can act in order for it to be really horrendous when you fail. Um, and you can think about the games that it's contemporaneous with and think about the games in the last few years. So you can think about, like, the Project Zero or, 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 and, and those series where you can do something weak and still get a result. And that perhaps goes way too far, which is to take out a kind of a whole concept of the game. Which is a perfect uh, point All to introduce right. Christian. Christian McRae is the games program um, director at RMIT University and he both teaches courses on video games, video game design, uh, games research, game culture, though he has been poo-pooing the word culture of late. Um, though we, we both were at the beginning, all right, I'll, I'll admit it. Uh, and he also researches and publishes in the area. Christian's a pro- prolific essay, essayist uh, writing on game materiality and popular digital arts, and he's given many conference papers in his research area on topics that include portable play, aesthetics and game violence, Pokemon, and he'll also be keynote speaker at uh, CODE, a media games and art conference at, RMI, at uh, Swinburne on the 21st to 23rd of November, for those of you who want to go along. Um, and tonight he's here talking to us about games and horror. Thank you. Um, I won't go into uh, my dreams as a child. It's far more perhaps pertinent to talk about um, a few years later for me. When you access the horror mentality, it becomes all-pervasive. And I was interested in horror in all things I was consuming. So art, movies, games, music. Um, especially. So once the door opens, all the blood comes down the elevator, and you can't really, it's not that things are, you, you kind of have to have horror mm. as a sort of baseline food staple in the media diet, because once you're there, you can't really go back, and I've, I'm, I'm less so these days, but certainly there was a period of my life where I couldn't listen to music unless there was a piece of industrial hammering, or, <laughs> and I couldn't watch a movie unless someone was horrendously mistreated. So what I, do, um, what I do is I'm an academic, I'm a particular form of academic, um, and I look at really the history of things or history of designed objects. And so I just want to show you some games you might not have heard of, maybe you've heard of in some, in some format, and really just talk about some things which are kind of unusual in the history of horror. So Sweet Home, 1989. Check out these amazing graphics. So this is actually not Sweet Home. This is a fan translation of Sweet Home on the Nintendo. 1989. Sweet Home is interesting because it's the antecedent to Resident Evil, um, partially designed by Shinji Mikami, who would go on to design Resident Evil. And it is um, incredibly hard, item-based survival horror in 8-bit graphics. It was one of the first film, and arguably for many, and I've argued... It's the first what would later be called transmedia experience because alongside the game was released a movie mm. called Sweet Home. And uh, I've w- played the fan translation of the game a couple of years ago and I've watched a horrendous translation of the film. And the film... Uh, <laughs> let's just say it goes to places... 
you don't really <laughs> expect a horror film to go. It's basically about five characters who are art historians. Sort of horrifying in its own kind of way, though. Yeah, no, I, looked, I chose this one particularly. It's about five art historians who go into a haunted mansion. I love it already. And um, they look, they're there to inspect the frescoes. And even as they're getting, like, decapitated, they're like, we better check out that last fresco before we leave. <laughs> Which Those is basically historians, they never give up. So you basically have the same characters in the film as you do in the game. And the house is out for revenge. Um, there's when you look at the graphics and you think, okay, it's nineteen eighty nine and and they're they're terrible, it's really it's really important to remember that games are really about the time that they emerge. And actually in nineteen eighty nine that was pretty spectacular. Mm. And what was happening in the mid-cycle of the Nintendo in Japan is especially interesting. Sweet Home begins an arms race for horror in Japanese development houses. And their arms race then develops into Resident Evil versus Silent Hill. The success and failure of those game series is really about the, the arms race between the two represented companies, Capcom and Konami, who are interested in developing a kind of market leadership position. And so they'll do anything to make a horror game all through that middle period of the last decade. So Sweet Home is really a really nice place to kind of go back to and say, this is where some of this stuff kicked off. Now, it's using mechanics and gameplay styles that you might, as um, soon as you can see a screen like this, you realize, oh, it's an RPG element. There's um, sequences of fighting that are very much, uh, all the game mechanics very much taken from uh, Dragon Warrior, later on Dragon Quest. Um, you might be familiar with the same concept from Final Fantasy. And these mechanics and, and things really kind of... Um, you might think, well, that's not very horror because I can still do a lot of things. Well, you can. It's not that it's difficult. It's just that the conditions for getting into fights are actually really, really easy. Beating them is easy. But most of the time, you don't get there. Um, you have things like attack... It's a bit of a skin problem, that guy. Hey, he's all, hey just don't, don't discriminate. Um, he, so you have things like pray, and pray isn't like a spell. That's literally pray, mm. and nothing happens, and you die. <laughs> Except for one character who has a breach, basically finds their faith, and when you pray, you automatically win. Um, and it was really interesting at the time because while the movie was could could show gore and it could get the teenage audiences really excited, of course, Sweet Home couldn't. So what they did is they start to push these um, special scenes to show as much gore in an 8-bit format as they could. And I think, and I, I didn't want to show them all, but I love Asuka's death screen. It's really like we don't have a lot of colours. What, what are we going to do with the, with the blood? We're just going to make it look kind of this blue or purple and, and red. It's just wonderful. Um, and Kazuo, um, this is a very classic um, animation technique from anime where you cut, cut a character in half, split the two elements of the body and make them shimmer and disappear. So it's like a classic animation death. Mm-hmm. But in the context of having spent two or three hours with Kazuo um, and seeing the blue shirt in a sort of little chibi format run around the grid and you're like, oh, Kazuo. Um, having seen this where it's the only time you see him in a sort of full-scale sprite, it's actually terrifying. And I had come to the game through, like a lot of people do when we come to horror, go through it through the irony lens. It's like, oh, I'll play the first horror game. 
And it took maybe an hour for me to forget the irony and just actually be terrified. Because even though it's 8-bit, even though it's 20 years old, I'm searching for the way out for these little bits, these little sprite characters who I've got some investment in. So it's absolutely crucial that before any of you leave, you gain some knowledge of Clock Tower. Clock Tower, um, and here we have uh, the main character fending off Scissor Man. And Scissor Man is 10 times more terrifying than Pyramid Head. And by the way, Pyramid Head, um, Pyramid Head's monsters and Scissor Man all really closely related to a series of um, art exhibitions. So the Hans Belmer doll is an antecedent of the, mm-hmm. of the monsters in Silent Hill. Pyramid Head is based on, a, on an old Goya painting that got taken up in Germany. All these art history for these characters. Scissor Man is like this terrifying little dwarf who's the son of the mistress of the house in which you're staying. If you... If you've never heard of Clock Tower before, I'll just say it's like a multi-layered Dario Argento fan fiction. I was going to say, isn't it influenced by Argento? Not even... even, It's just... It just takes in all the elements of Phenomena, uh, Profundo Rosso, um, and Suspiria. Mm. And in fact, it begins with Anne, poor Anne, um, being nailed to the ground by Scissor Man, and she's fallen through a stained glass rosette, which is exactly... what happens in Suspiria. Mm. Um, which is a terrible way to go. Um, so in this game, what's, what's interesting about this game is that it's Super Nintendo and PlayStation. Um, really, it's the, it's the PlayStation version that adds the proper sound that really kicks off the genre's popularity. What's interesting about this game is that it's using mouse control. So you use the, the D-pad on the controller to move a mouse cursor, which had only been done a, really, a couple of times before that, and it's then not released on PC. So it's like, you deal with this. (laughs) You would only do that on purpose with an expensive production if you wanted to get an effect. And the effect for them was make it difficult, make it strange constantly. So you don't pull left and right. If I pull left and right on any any game of this era, I'm moving Anne or I'm I'm moving Jen, but I'm not. I'm moving the cursor and the cursor will be, there's an arrow left and right, there's do this, do that. And that's to get you out of the mindset that you have any ability at all. So it has these very nice sequences where there's lots of cinematics and this kind of scrolling and scrolling um, text and images. But it's really about um, using the cursor to scan screens and look for things to do, much like an adventure point and click, except the action is real time, except that Scissor Man runs across the screen. So you have to be absolutely rapid. So this game is also one very, very interesting for having multiple endings, um, for having a kind of internal morality system, which it doesn't tell you about, and it's kind of mean as well. Um, pretty much every character is a cannibal, um, including you, um, when pushed. And so you basically deal with what is the best... So it's one of those games you replay like 50 times. What is the best way for me to leave this house with the minimum of people getting eaten. Um, and you're basically looking for, like, those, like a interactive fiction, you're looking for the best path, of the, way, best path of the way through the story. Clock Tower is important. Well, Sweet Home and Clock Tower are important because they get cited again and again and again by later directors as being instrumental in raising the stakes for horror, in, especially in Japan. And it's these games which really got people thinking, producers 
and audiences in Japan thinking about what is the relationship between the horror genre and each new technology platform. So there has to be a horror genre on each new console. So many, many years later, um, as the PS2 is reaching like insane critical mass, and we forget now because of the PS3s, sort of, we get stuck in the modern era, you forget just how popular the PS2 was and the impact it had on mm-hmm. popular culture. So there's a horror arms race with Resident Evil, Silent Hill bursting out from the, the main third-party publishers. Sony lose their mind and they say, we have to get on this horror thing. Who knows about horror? They, f- they look around the company and they say, oh, oh, you did a PhD in horror film. Okay, you're a, film, you're a game director now. You're a, what's called a scenario designer. You design and put together a team and you're called Project Siren and your game's called Siren. We don't know anything else about it. And they're like, well, great, thanks. So two years later, they end up with this game called Siren or Forbidden Siren. And, and rather than show you the game straight off, I want to show you what the menus look like. So this game matches um, an incredibly weird internal graphic system with this very stark, unusual, clean-designed interface. So it's still this menu system still scares the lights out of me because it looks like nothing else. It's got real. It's got photos of the actors on which the characters are then based. It's like, why are you doing this to me? Why am I looking at this real actor? <laughs> and of course, it's to get. It's to bridge that gap where you think there's a a real person behind the character. And I don't want to build up the next few images too much, um, but there is not... I mean, I, I, think, I think like everyone here, I've played a few horror games, but in this game, I was a grown adult and I was unable to play by myself. Just, I found it unacceptable threat to my person. Um, and even, an, even one other person sometimes wasn't enough. I needed multiple people to make sure I was safe. The reason is the, the system of facial animation that they used, they said they wanted to get across the idea that it was film projected on the face of a mannequin. Mm-hmm. And what they did, in, in, for those of you who care, is that they got a very high detailed texture and put it on a basically flat face. So no geometry on the face. And they just took it from eight different angles. So... The worst part is, for those of you who know anything about games, you're like, wait a minute, how does that work? Because then there's eight angles. They simply faded from angle to angle. So as you looked at someone and moved around, their face would fade in steps. (laughs) And that was unacceptable. (laughs) And when they talked, rather than having mouth lips going like this, they had mouth open one, mouth open two, closed mouth, and it would simply fade like a candle flickering, like really quickly in between those states. Again, unacceptable. It was just terrifying. <laughs> the whole game is... The whole game of Siren is based upon... Um, and we've had some questions about this concept. Basically, you're unable to do anything. In the game, um, there's a town at the edge of a lake and there is a, um, a siren that sounds every two nights. And as you arrive, you're one of, you're one of many characters of you with Kyoya, and you uncover a mystery that the town and the lake cursed. And what they're cursed with is that there is a disease that's at the bottom of the lake 
and it destroys the faces of the villagers. So you're talking about a story about this facial destruction and you're dealing with facial destruction as a player. It's unacceptable as the game goes on. The core game mechanic isn't you doing stuff. The core game mechanic is you looking through the eyes of the shibito or the zombies. And the shibito are a special type of Japanese zombie. In the context of the game, they're like a diseased killer. And they're kind of like a, it's like a kind of rage virus. But it's really zombie. Basically, in the, you get infected, you walk into the lake for two nights, and then re-emerge diseased, which is pretty terrifying. So you're playing a character, and then the next level, you're like, hey, there's a character I was playing last level. What are they doing? Oh, oh. And they're submerged into the lake. And then they come out, and they're trying to kill you. So you, you're looking at, what you do is you switch viewpoints between you and the other players, and, and all the zombies. But you can't control them. All you can do is run for your life. You can later, if you're very, very good, have a, have a shovel. But that doesn't help much. The other thing I'll add, and showing out these other faces, and you can see like the distortion on the heads, kind of really like unpleasant to look at. And this was great in the PS2 era, because all these games were trying to get, oh, we've got these really great realistic effects. And they were truly building up the polygon counts on faces and getting it wrong. And this is the way to do it. Just make it look horrendous. Um, the, the, other, the other thing that's interesting about this game is that you never did anything simply. If, I, if, I, if we were working on a game together and we said, okay, we're going to have to make the player open doors, you would think, all right, great. So they'll go up to a door and they'll have press X to open door and we'll press X. No such luck. In this game, you go up to a door and a prompt that fills the entire screen comes up and says, would you like to open door? Yes, no. And you go from no to yes, X. And then it says, oh, are you sure? And you go, yes. <laughs> and goes, okay. And then it goes back into the game and your character does this really slow animation. Now, if you said that, to, if I explain that to horror film people or to especially like you know, game design fanatics who are kind of generally horrendous people anyway, they would say that's terrible game design because it takes you out of the action. But of course... You want to be taken out of the action in this context. You want to be as far removed of the action as possible because it takes away the idea that you can do anything. The menus are doing anything. Mm. That's why you have that horrendous stark menu because when you open any door, use any key, get in any car, you're back in a world of kind of horrendous like bank ads menu and it looks like this really, really stark environment. And it works in beautiful concerts. So you have this facial animation system, the menus... And it just kind of, it's really unsettling. And it's super, super kind of convoluted, horrendous story. Um, and this, this image, um, which is um, probably the most standout section of the game, she's, there's, they say it's not a glitch. They say that this is how they meant it. She's talking to you while holding this face for about two minutes. And everybody else has been mimicking moving, uh, moving their mouths. But she's getting infected. So as she's getting infected, her basically her ability to move her face is gone. So they basically merge the technical glitch, technical kind of layer of the game and the story layer in a really interesting way. Um, and that's when I captured myself, which I still... I, I can't really... I kind of used it in, um, in an in a, in a article once. The only comments I got about the article were like, that is the worst and most terrifying image I've ever seen, please. I want to finish... Um, 
my examples with um, uh, Guichi Suda's um, first directed game, Michigan Report from Hell. We wanted to do Killer 7 um, and uh, works with Grasshopper Manufacturer. Michigan Report from Hell from 2004, during the middle of this horror arms race in the PS2 era, is one of the worst games on the PS2. It is garbage. And one of the reasons... One of the reasons game reviewers didn't like it, and again, you wouldn't want to read them, is, is that it tries to do too many things. It tries to do horror, um, suspense, and comedy, and eroticism all at once. And the, the game is... The ga- features of horror. Videos. Hey, I know, I know. It doesn't quite work. In th- what you do is record. You're a cameraman. You don't do... Well, you almost don't do anything else. You run around and press record and drain your battery and record the events. So it's basically like a theme park world. You'll like this. The theme park world. And you're capturing elements, and they're worth different things. So it's like kind of like Pokemon Snap, but for beheadings. <laughs> now, the re- one of the reasons people hated it when they were both reviewing it, um, and the general public hated it as well, is that if you die or if you make a mistake, rather than send you backwards, it sends you forwards through the game. So if you die four times in a row, game's over. You win. Thanks. <laughs> so you have to like, take your time. It's really good. And you're kind of... It's the Joker. I know. It's good. So there's, the game is just basically full of these horrendous visual glitches, um, no, to my knowledge, not one animation is properly done. Um, to give you an idea of how low budget this game is, Goichi Suda had no idea it had been translated in, into English um, last year. And it, would, it came out instantly. So the, the voiceover work is all, like you said, it's just kind of like ham acting. Mm. But the thing is, because the game is unreliable in how it treats technology, and you're thinking, well, this is just terrible. Because it's unreliable, it gets horror. Because it gets horrendous. Because you can't rely on the game to deliver for you the experience that you set out to do. You're incapable is one thing. But the game being incapable is another. It's absolutely incapable of getting you through the content. Animations don't work. Textures don't work. (laughs) And some of the game concepts don't really work either. This is the most... um, interesting uh, game mechanic in the game. Your face changes depending on what type of footage you capture. And there are three extremes. Suspense, action, and erotic. (laughs) Which one's erotic? Yeah, it's got to be the far, yeah. far left, left, left. Right. So we're all amateur phrenologists all of a sudden, right? Yep. <laughs> but it's absolutely how we... It's absolutely how it reads. The reason it's interesting, there's only one mirror in the game. Well, sorry, there's only one mirror that works in the game. So you only get to see it once. And it's at the beginning. So you have to have been pretty extreme. And so you have all these kind of multiple states of, of the, the, the character can be. And again, it's one of those things that because it doesn't quite work, it's actually kind of horrendous. And I find myself putting in Michigan Report from Hell and uncovering things in, I wouldn't say the game, it's more like the software, in that you can go out in, outside in the, into the street and there's a glitch happening that wasn't there last time and it's a monster kind of stuck in the ground going... <laughs> and it's waving around and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's like an octopus kind of... 
been like landed. And it's just terrifying. And then the PS2 crashes, which is pretty rare. PS2 is pretty sturdy. And that's more horrendous than, <laughs> to me than many attempts to kind of ramp up production values. Sometimes low production values can really get there. Yeah, but In- you're talking about a different layer of, of horror, though, aren't you? It's about a horrendous experience that's created through badly produced game. Well... Or I, are you no, actually terrified when the little creature is stuck in the... Well, look, I, I mean, I don't, think, I don't think it's... When you see a scene like this, and it's like this is like the lowest of the low-poly train yard, you'd have to, like... I mean, I teach student games, and if a student said this is a train yard, I'd say go back and do it again. And it's still, it's still got this element of horror. Now, in... In Silent Hill, for those of you who played some of the Silent Hill games, there's this concept of the fog and the fog enshrouds the town. And, of course, it, it elides nicely with the idea that you need to put geometry back into the fog so it doesn't consume the game processor too much. So it's, it's very, very handy. Here in Michigan, report from hell, um, the fog is... They, they didn't think there was a fog. They said, oh, what do you mean, what fog? And they was interviewed... <laughs> They're like, what do, you, what do you mean no fog? <laughs> That's just the engine running at full capacity. They just didn't code anything properly. So it's all an all, all amateur team working. Um, working. And it's, when you go out, this is a bit an extreme case, but there's street scenes where you're like one, two, three, four buildings and the road, and you're like, why does the road stop? And you walk up to the end and it just falls into nothing. So it's a sort of like a, it's like on a set. It's basically like... Um, it's like... Um, it's like kind of like a, it's like a stage play in kind of in those sense. So it really gets to a different horror effect, and because you're searching for some kind of dreamlike sort of quality in all these glitches and technical errors, you get to a very different horror mindset. Which is my first point: that when you're in the horror mindset, it doesn't matter what the quality is because this is this is white rice and bread. This is staple diet. You're looking for anything that will get you to that place. And this is a kind of, it, it's a fine point maybe, but you get, to, you get to the point where you've consumed so many of these images mm. that you're looking for something low quality or you're looking for something that's broken because the pursuit of realism or the pursuit of high quality, high quality images and high quality sound is, is an arms race that the subject or the person consuming it loses because it only ever goes in one direction. So you need the multitude of images to be consumed at once, which is why when games like Slender come out, which are kind of low-budget um, and kind of indie, they work just as well as the kind of scary games alongside it. And so horror fans appreciate Amnesia, will enjoy Slender, even though it's kind of much worse, and then go back to Amnesia, and they exist in an ecosystem because it's not the individual games that matter, it's the continual culture of horror that matters. Thanks, Christian. Actually, if we could thank our speakers and then we could open up to questions. That was great. Thanks, guys. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.